0: and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for Tea. Welcome to the conversation. Hello everyone. My guest this week is Oliver Traldi. Oliver is a graduate student in philosophy at the University of Notre Dame, which, despite the name, is actually in Indiana. <laughs> And Victor Rivera is joining me this week to help me wrangle Oliver as a temporary (laughs) co-host. Victor is a clinical psychology MA student at Pepperdine University, which I believe is in Malibu uh, in California. And he is interested in psychotherapy and psychological research. And I am coming to you from Buenos Aires as usual. Um, I also just wanted to mention that because, uh, Matthew Pitzinger, who is one of our, um, sponsors, patrons of this podcast, and who is also one of my favorite people on Twitter. When I said that I usually podcast with a glass of wine, asked me to say what I, what I'm drinking. So for Matthew, I'm going to mention that I'm drinking a Trapiche de Cave Syrah from 2017, which was it was a 200 peso wine, which I think is about $7 or something. It's kind of the top top price range of wines that I drink.
1: Uh, yeah, that's around my top price range as well. <laughs>
0: and um, usually in Argentina, you should drink Malbec or just fuck off. Uh-huh. But this particular Syrah is actually very nice. Cheers, Matthew. Oliver, I also didn't mention in your bio that you are a... Quite prolific writer for um, various online publications, including ARIO. And you're also a columnist at uh, Arc Digital.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's my current home, so to speak, is Arc Digital.
0: Bloody hell, they stole you. <laughs> that's very annoying. Arc Digital are our competitors. <laughs> and I think they have a somewhat more social justice leftist slant than. Either Ario or definitely Quillette. But of course the slants of, of online magazines are constantly changing and it depends on you, the our contributors. But so I I wonder if we could begin by talking a little bit about Jordan Peterson.
2: Yeah. That's always a good way to start.
0: <laughs> Get the blood going.
1: Yeah, we haven't we haven't heard much from him in a while, have we? What yeah. is what is he even up to these days?
2: He's hanging out with uh, Victor Orban, I believe.
1: Oh yeah. Well, I can't. I I don't know anything about European politics. I hear that it's bad, but
2: In Hungary, I can't. I can't it.
1: necessarily. Yeah, I mean, I know he's a bad guy. I don't. I don't have anything <laughs> to say about that.
0: Um, so I was I I read your article Oliver about dirtbag lefties yeah. on the Chapo Crapo chap house or whatever they're <laughs> called. You can
1: you can call them you can call them Crapo. I'm fine with calling them the Crapo chap. The Crapo Chaps. That's fine. Yeah. So I wrote this review. I wrote this review in American Affairs. And
0: and Jordan Peterson. So you compared Jordan Peterson's 12 12 Rules for Life and a book that was written by this chapo, crapo collective of guys, (laughs) who who seemed to be a very big thing on Patreon. And I had literally never, ever encountered them before. Except when I think Kathy Young uh, published some article which fell foul of their ideology. They were writing this thing about how Kathy Young should actually be called Kathy Old. And they all seem to find <laughs> this just astoundingly <laughs> witty.
1: Yeah. So they, they love changing people's names. So the, the very first thing, they'll like change a letter in somebody's last name, and then like a hundred of them will tweet it at this person. And like, that's how they, how, that's how they get you on Twitter.
0: Oh, right. I, yes. I don't, I don't, I don't
1: know why it's crazy to me, <laughs> but at least honestly the Kathy young to Kathy old is like wittier. That's like more intelligent than they normally get with the name change thing.
0: Hmm. Well, my answer to them on that is my answer always to people who, who um, criticize me or, or Kathy, who is, I think, two or three years older than me. I mean that literally, that's not a euphemism. (laughs) I think Kathy and I are about the same age. Uh, What I always say to those people is, I I know it's really terrible that I live to such an old age. I hope hope, uh, such a terrible fate never happens to you.
1: (laughs) That's pretty good.
0: (laughs) I don't mean that seriously, of course. I'm just joking. But uh, that's been my only encounter with them. They're kind of trolls of the hard left is that mm-hmm.
1: correct sort of marxist trolls- yeah um or, or socialists of various types i think it's fair to say that i for a lot of them like trolling is the ideology and it's not that they're trolls of a certain ideology but they just happen to find you know an ideology having an ideology is a good way to become a troll right so like part of the idea behind my review is like if you're looking, you know, if you're looking to become a troll, then maybe you'll become a Chapo fan, or maybe you'll become an alt writer. But like, either way, you know, you're going to find what you're looking for on uh, on this great website we call Twitter.
0: It's really, I mean, trolling just works on the principle that all publicity is good publicity, right? You're trying to provoke a response, any response, and it's easier to provoke a negative response than a than a positive one. It's easier to get people to think. Oliver Turaldi is a total wanker than to think <laughs> I really admire Oliver. He's so insightful and intelligent. <laughs> you know?
1: Yeah. Well, it's, it's, certainly lot, it's, been, it's certainly been easier for me to convince people that I'm a wanker <laughs> than it has for me to convince <laughs> people that I'm, that I'm insightful. Um, but yeah, I mean, part of, I think the idea behind my review was that there's, um, there's this, there's this kind of demographic, which I consider myself almost sort of a part of in a way of these uh, kind of lost. Lost boys, you know these, this lost kind of generation of young men in their in their twenties, I guess, early to late twenties. Um, and I think that one place they they look for an an identity and kind of a sense of purpose is in is in the, the culture war and in politics surrounding the culture war, including, you know, I think it's fair to say that socialism as a personality, so to speak. You know, there's this joke that goes around the DSA, you know, like people in these circles, whenever they see somebody who doesn't actually seem to know much about oh, politics. Oliver,
2: what's the uh, what's the DSA? Just
1: oh, a- yeah. The, the yeah. Democratic Socialist of America. It's this. Um, oh, it's not okay. exactly a political party. I I'd actually forget exactly how you, you classify it. But like uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is a member. Um, They really like Bernie Sanders and they do some good stuff. It's kind of they have a lot of chapters
0: so it's actually fairly, fairly respectable. It's not like a socialist workers party or anything like that.
1: Well, I don't, I don't know. I don't know that much about the socialist workers party, or I I don't know who's respectable or not, but I I would just say that there's a range of people involved with it. And sometimes they, they have this joke where they say like being socialist isn't a personality, right? So it's clear that a lot of people in the organization or like, you know, people in these circles are aware of this issue of young people kind of Joining up because they they're they're looking for an identity. They're looking to figure out kind of who they are. When it comes to Peterson, so Peterson has this similar fan base, right? And in fact, b- both both Chapo and Peterson kind of explicitly have said they're looking for this demographic of these kind of lost, you know, lost by the wayside boys who are in their twenties and kind of are looking for meaning in their lives. They're looking for something to believe. And I think Peterson more explicitly kind of tries to aim at them you know peterson says i'm going to give you this book maps of meaning this will show you how to develop meaning in your lives and then you know the 12 rules for life are like rules about how to live a meaningful life and how to live in a way that's consistent with the meaning that you've developed or whatever um so i think i think i and a lot of criticisms of peterson how kind of criticize him for trying to appeal to this demographic because this is also the demographic out of which you get you know the incels and the alt right and stuff like that um but i think that's like the worst possible criticism of peterson because i think this is like a demographic that does need some attention and some appealing to um and that's a good way to keep them from becoming you know violent and angry and things like that
0: are the alt right um are there stats on that are the alt right overwhelmingly young men
1: um i don't actually i think uh it depends exactly how you define alt-right, you know, how you measure it. Um, I think if you look in surveys for, you know, if you call people's houses and ask them, do you identify with the alt-right, you're not going to get it being uh, overwhelmingly young men. But if you look at, you know, internet forums and Twitter and who's writing the articles and who's going to the marches and things like that, I think in that case, you are going to get, you know, a a very overwhelming proportion of young men. Um, So I think it, it kind of depends how you operationalize the term um i think the alt right you know like any other political movements are often dominated by young people and i think the alt right is no different than like occupy wall street in that way um
0: well it seems as though if you have this demographic of young men who feel disenfranchised and alienated then that's it's especially important to appeal to them
1: yeah i w- i would certainly agree with that and i think it's it's a virtue of both peterson and chapo that they've done this but uh I just don't think either of them do it in like a particularly, you know, coherent intellectual way. And uh, I think one of the questions I saw on Twitter was about Peterson. In a lot of cases, it's hard to tell what exactly his agenda is. Right. So uh, he's started to I don't know how current this is, but he's threatened lawsuits against people, you know, people who have insulted him. Um, And he said, you know, maybe we need to shut down. The, the grievance studies departments and stuff like that. So it can be very hard to figure out, you know, he began, he kind of garnered attention initially as a free speech warrior relating to the, you know, the transgender pronoun issue mm. um, where he was he was refusing to use people's preferred pronouns.
0: Was he, re- was he refusing to use them? I thought that his argument was simply that it shouldn't be, he shouldn't be legally obliged to use them.
1: Yeah, so he was... In the face of what he thought was uh, a legal mandate to use the pronouns, he was conscientiously objecting. Um,
0: I thought when he said he wouldn't use pronouns, he was referring to singular they and also neologisms like Z and Zem and things. But he was willing to use he and she in the way that the trans person requested. I mean, I haven't seen an example of him behaving like Candace Owen behaved on the Rubin Report, where she was. Sitting there talking to Blair White and referring to Blair White all of the time as he. At at one point she said, uh, "I and she even slipped up several times because Blair White looks so feminine that it you have to to call refer to Blair White uh-huh. as he. You have to actually make a concerted effort to avoid the female. Uh, yeah, poni. you actually
1: really need to. You really need to remind yourself. Of and I think at
0: one point she said. I refuse to refer to her as a woman or something. <laughs>
1: she- <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, that that sounds very performative. Yeah, I think um, Candace Owens is kind of a uniquely... Well, I I don't know that much about her. Um, and the the Candace Owens... I mean, I've seen her, her tweets about the flag-burning stuff. And it, it's just such a level of... Um, just like blatant inconsistency and like proud inconsistency around the the principles of free speech, and you you were mentioning Kathy Young earlier. Mm. She had like a, a great kind of piece on like the prehistory of yes. Candace Owens because she was kind of on on the other. She was like a social justice type involved in GamerGate, I think, and that's how that's why Kathy knows so much about her. And then she kind of just switched immediately. And people like that are so interesting to me. There are these like chameleons who are like constantly on the lookout for like, how do I, you know, what is the best way for me to be in order to get the most money or the most audience it just seems so exhausting to me to be constantly thinking about that. It's so much easier to just kind of like act in a way that's natural. But I guess, I guess it works for people like that. I guess they're able to, you know, she has an immense following. I'm sure she makes a ton of money. I don't know. I
2: suspect she's in the, any publicity is good publicity. Good publicity yeah. That's her, her philosophy. So she's going to say sort of the most outrageous thing that, first of all, she knows that the people that fall for that shtick are intense and they'll stick with her. You yeah. know what I mean? So it's kind of like
0: um,
2: you're in it yes. now, right? It's, it's kind of hard to go back to go the other way so she's picking she's picking the low hanging fruit the meat whatever you want to call it and jumping on that so are we are we trying to hone in on what makes uh what made hard to say what's going on now but what made Peterson really relevant to these so-called lost boys
0: and um yes um, so i i mean i personally i have heard Peterson sounding very sensible on free speech issues in certain interviews, in particular, his n- interview, the notorious interview with Kathy Young. Uh, uh-huh. Not Kathy Young. Uh, right. Sorry, you, you mean... You know, I'm Kathy Newman.
1: Kathy Newman, right? <laughs> yes. It's confusing because if you're a new man, then you're young. <laughs> so, so it's kind of like the same thing. <laughs> that's interesting. That's a good way to...
0: That's, I'm, I'm sure that's somehow a problematic and sexist remark, but yeah, I will, yeah, I I will have overlook have man, it but... for now.
2: You'll be cancelled
0: uh, uh. later, but um, yes. in his interview with Kathy Newman, he was he sounded very sensible and articulate, and when he is straw manned, mm. I think he's extremely good at defending himself. Mm. But whenever he is not so much defending his reputation, but actually mm-hmm. spouting his own ideas, <laughs> I have to All say right. that I. I have a very low tolerance because I, um, I know this might sound pathetic, but I do suffer from migraines, and I literally feel like this is going wow. to trigger a migraine if I listen to too much of this. Um, <laughs>
2: he's, he's bad for your health, literally.
0: Well, for me, <laughs> yes. I mean, many people <laughs> seem to find that charming. But there's something about the combination of this kind of Jungian archetypal stuff, which is both banal, you know, the actual, it, it's both kind of obscurant, ob, obscure or maybe even obscurantist. Obscurantist mm-hmm. um, is implying a motive on his part. And I don't know if he has any kind of, if he really is an imposter or if he, he really believes his own shtick. Mm-hmm. I think he believes it. I think he's sincere. Yep.
2: Yeah, I think yes. he's a true believer.
0: Yeah. I, but I,
2: yes, for better or worse, I think he believes what he says.
0: He's probably a, a, he's probably a very nice bloke. I don't have
2: maybe I don't know
0: yeah I don't (laughs)
2: my suspicions but I don't want to say that type of stuff like you know just spouting it I
0: have I have no idea and I'm I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt but there's something very hucksterish about this spiel it's it's like very sort of basic allegorical ideas dressed Mm -hmm. up in fancy language and He's also constantly redefining terms. So it's not that he's using complex vocabulary, which is necessary to express a sophisticated concept. It's that he's taking some ordinary word like belief or God or truth and just completely redefining it. Uh-huh. And it gives him this inbuilt Martin Bailey thing. I can never remember which is the Martin, which is the Bailey. I hate this metaphor for that reason. But, yeah. you know, he's he's able to make this sophisticated sound, this kind of, let's say, um, rather daring mm. assertion. Like, for example, everybody mm. is actually a Christian. <laughs> right. And which I, as a Zoroastrian from a non-Western heritage background, I take a special exception to that. <laughs> and uh, actually, Peterson, you are actually a Zoroastrian. Wow, you just don't Johnny know come. it.
1: <laughs>
0: Get away from me with your Johnny Come Lately religion. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> these recent, these Abra- recent Abrahamic religions, nonsense. Anyway, (laughs) we didn't have that in my day back when the Sassanids Mm -hmm. were in power. But he, so he will say something really daring like that. And you'll think, okay, this is interesting. How is he going to justify this? And he'll start by justifying it in this extremely obscure way that doesn't Seem to hang together or make sense. And then he will shift over to, well, actually, it's because everybody has a set of moral values. Uh-huh. You know, so it turns out to be something incredibly bizarre, um, banal, which has uh-huh. nothing to do with his original assertion. So it's this awful mixture of the obscure and the kind of hallmark um, greeting card style banal.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, I think that there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of redefinition going on in Peterson, which is really, it's something that bothers me most about a lot of, a lot of people kind of who would oppose Peterson is the, the redefining of a word um, to make the conclusions come out correct when they sounded interesting, but then they turn out just to be a tautology if you're, if you're defining the words in a new way.
0: And right, Peterson is, right. Everything
1: Peterson does is is in line with that. Um, I will say that, you know, I think that some of the Hallmark card type stuff I think I agree that I, I agree that it's often kind of superficial, but you know, it's not like it's all false. You know, so Peterson mm-hmm. and it is sometimes, you know, it's just that you can find it anywhere right? Like you can find it in like a movie or something. And the so Peterson, one thing that I think is reflected in my own life, um, you know, Peterson talks about how you need to what is it in Jungian terms like you need to integrate your shadow, right? So integrating your shadow is yeah. like there are parts of yourself that are like dark and icky, right? And you could like yep. pretend they're not there, or you could be like, Oh, this is part of who I am and I need to like use this mm-hmm. for good, you know, and like I have this dark potential. And I think that that's like I'm
0: looking I'm looking down right now at my dark and icky part. <laughs> getting ready to use it. Yeah, we've all
1: we've all got them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, we don't we don't all have the same parts, but we all have at least one dark and icky part. Um, yes, but uh, yeah, and I think that's very true that you need to kind of get comfortable with with certain parts of yourself to grow. And you know, I myself certainly, I think that there's an obvious thing where the relationship between integrating your shadow and to people who feel that they've kind of left social justice or left you know the progressive movement you know, integrating your shadow is a sensible way to think about it, where you're kind of like, wow, I guess I did have some beliefs that were inconsistent with this kind of orthodoxy of what I thought were like the only good ways to think. Um, Mm -hmm. So I definitely think that integrating your shadow is like a sensible concept. The problem is kind of like a theme of tons of movies and like fantasy stories. And, you know, like it's not, you know, there's not anything particularly deep about it. And it's also like, you know, Carl Jung already said it and explained it. So it, it's yeah. hard to see exactly, you know, what maybe he's a problem. Yeah, go
2: ahead. Yeah, let me jump in. Okay. The problem, I, this is how I would state the problem. And, you know, as someone who's read his books, we'll, we'll just say that um, he's trying to do too many things at once. So he's, as far as his book goes, we'll just kind of stick to the 12 Rules uh-huh. book he's trying to insert a level of science in there which he mangles Uh you know and then he's trying to insert um what you're talking about right some of the metaphorical language of young and you know the the hero's journey and all Mm -hmm. these sorts of movie-ish things right he's trying he's
0: it's interesting you both say you both say young and not young
2: oh i young
1: yeah that's, I, so we, I don't, I don't that's know just I americanized saying. that's like us being vulgar <laughs> americans
2: yeah we're terrible i say call i mean i'd say call yeah what up call, call. Oh, so i'd sound I really terrible call i don't have you know my accent so um so he has he's got that stuff going in his book and then he's trying to insert some just authoritarian parenting on top of some weird explanations of psychology. So I I think if you write a book and you're going to write it like a self-help book and you're going to just do it in a Carl Jung type way, then you're going to write a book very unlike his book, you know? But what happens is I, I really like what you said, right? Which is he's really good when he's just kind of defending himself or defending free speech Mm -hmm. or something like that. If he's, you know, that's, that's really perfect to me. But when he's trying to figure out what his own philosophy is, he doesn't know. I mean, when I read his book, I'm like, this guy, he's still figuring a lot of things out at once. And none of this is so, you know, Oliver and I did a podcast recently and we talked a lot about congruence, right? Just trying to bring all these different aspects in together to yourself to really feel like you're you're right in his book you can tell he at least I could tell or sense he's not he's 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 struggling you know he's having a tough time and so he's trying to fuse all of these ideas in his head which is an interesting approach I really like that and on the one hand I don't know about the lobster stuff (laughs) but I do like I do like you know the technical elements of it but it is worth thinking about yeah there are these ancient parts of your brain and through the process of evolution, they've sort of been, you know, covered up, if you will. But there, there is sort of something that we're denying at different points in our life. Like, what is a simpler way to deal with this issue or think about it? And so, you know, he's what he's doing is really interesting. It's just he's also trying to just, justify his ideology on top of all of it. You know, I think if he did just some cool kind of comparative psychology and, you know, on top of evolutionary biology, I like yeah. that, you know, I, I love psychology as you know. But then he's adding on top of all of that, he's inserting some kind of super conservative parenting mm-hmm. in there. And it just if you're going to use the science of psychology or behavior genetics in this case to talk about what happens with kids when you don't do this or that, he's he's not speaking from fact, he's just speaking from his his ideology. Yeah, you know. So so mm-hmm. when you're reading the book, you're kind of going, well, this is wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong. Okay. This is a good point. The Hallmark stuff, the Hallmark stuff was nice. I mean, I, you know, I read it and I was like, Hey, you know what? He's right here. This is cool. Um, but some of the other stuff was really hit and miss and completely wrong.
1: Yeah. So I think, um, so I think there's two things going on here that I agree with. in what you said, one is that look, a lot of the people attacking him, we're just you know talking nonsense you know like he would say something completely reasonable and they would go nuts right yeah. and they would, and they would completely yes. misrepresent it and like the whole so what you're saying is meme that's like a completely justified meme because he's just like <laughs> massively misrepresented um one thing that happens with and this is true of like even physicists get this biologists get this you know you have people who garner a certain amount of success in their own field and they get to this public intellectual status and what they start to think is like, okay, it took me like 10 years to master my field and like another 10 years to, you know, to develop, you know, a, a research project in it that, you know, that was compelling and that, sh- and that you know, was a significant contribution. And now I'm going to take like five minutes to understand, you know, everything else about every other field that exists, right? So like, you know, you spend 10 years developing your theory of meaning and then like, oh, I'm just going to like talk about the word truth, you know, without like reading any, you know, like any of the thousands of years of philosophical literature on what it means for something to be true, you know, um, or I'm just going to jump into to politics without, you know, thinking about, you know, any, any political science or any, you know, political theory and just do it off the base of my, of my psychology research. And I think that that's, that's very dangerous. Yeah. One thing, I hope that I never succumb to this. One thing that I try to do is just to remember that like to know about philosophy is not to know about, you know, every subject at the same time. It's just like a very limited number of things that I've managed to learn. And if you want to learn something new, you kind of need to approach it from its own perspective and you need to have a bit of humility.
0: I think, I mean, my two main problems with him, I, well, well my main problem is the the migraine inducing <laughs> uh, sort of element of his work for me. Um, and uh, which is partly a, a matter of taste. You know, I can't I do have a few people who've told me that his work was incredibly inspiring to them, and even a few young men have have commented to me on Twitter that he prevented them from committing suicide, that they were suicidal and that they found Peterson and they, he was the means of their recovery. So I can't really argue with that. And that's great. That's wonderful. But my, my, I have several personal problems. One is that there is this easy slippage, which I think is very easily symptomatic in psychiatry as well, or this kind of Freudian union psychology, which is still incredibly popular here in Argentina. I would say Freudian psychoanalysis is the number one most commonly used technique. And as I think everybody knows, we are notorious for having the highest number of shrinks per capita in the world.
2: I had no idea. In the city. Really interesting.
0: There's not only no stigma attached to um, having a shrink, but if you don't have a shrink, it's like you don't go to the dentist or something. Wow. Um, You know, it should be a normal part of your healthcare. should be Hmm. going to see a shrink. And... um, I think that there's this kind of awful non-deniability, this sort of catch-22 situation that Freudians famously put you in. Um, This is the thing that's really happening, you know, and if you deny it, that's even more of a sign that that it must be true. And I feel this kind of slippage in Peterson as well. He's like, there's this archetype where men are ordered Uh and women are chaotic, or the masculine is order and the feminine is chaos. But the slippage between this is a this is a metaphor to women are kind of chaotic, so maybe as a woman you shouldn't be doing X and you should be doing Y, is always there right at the very edge with Peterson. And that's when he's saying things like, hmm, I wonder if men and women actually can work together. Maybe women shouldn't be in the workplace because well, this is just speculation. Of course, I'm not dictating to anybody. But let's look at these archetypes about sexuality, arousal, the man, the woman, the the Jesus, the hero, the dragon, and whatever. <laughs> and um, so I think he is sort of using this Jungian paraphernalia to just basically shore up really old-fashioned, very conservative ideas. That's the first thing. And the second thing is what he does with the concept of truth, which is why I think feel, I feel personally that he is a postmodernist because he is interested in language, symbols, dichotomies. And he says, you know, he doesn't think of truth in an epistemological sense as being, does this thing that I'm saying correspond to a real fact in the world? But he says the truth is Darwinian or whatever. It's kind of whatever is useful to you is actually what is true. That just makes zero sense.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So, um, <laughs> I have silenced you, of, you know, before you jump in, Oliver, let, um, you know,
2: <laughs> I w- <all> <laughs> uh, what, let, like,
3: let's really, de- let's define Paul. Oh, no, no, don't, don't it, put me up to that. Let me just respond. Let me respond to the Okay, very you know what? Limited, How about very uh, limited question for now.
2: Here, tell you what. My last, my last week of school, or like you know, one of my last weeks. Um, there's postmodernism in psychology, and just you know, to very simply state it, it's just a very basic idea of challenging systems, right? Because you, we just like we just live in the U.S. and we have all these norms, and whether implicitly or explicitly, we just kind of go by them. So when we make our goals, we often tend to make goals based on what we think they should be and, you know, sort of, you know, Mm -hmm. based on the norms of whatever's around us, right? Should I go to work? Should I be a stay-at-home mom? You know, why can't I go in the Navy, right? Like It tends to be very dichotomous and limiting and things like that. So it's kind of, it's an interesting approach to psychology if you strip away the word postmodernism in terms of discussing it because, you know, that usually sends off bells and whistles. So I think... Just to stay, just to kind of differentiate, I think Peterson is playing fast and loose with the word truth, but I'm not totally sure it's in a postmodern way per se, like in the the specific school of thought. It just sounds very like what we make fun of in terms of postmodernism saying, on the one hand, they might say there is no truth. He's saying, you know, sort of, or at least everyone has their own truths or something like that. He's he can't, he's getting lost saying I can't define it because it's, it's, I I think, can can you explain what that distinction is? I can't quite do it because I'm not the expert, but it sounds a little different than the school of thought known as postmodernism. Whatever
3: Peterson's doing, like, you know, it would take me six days to. Peterson is basically, when it comes to truth, Peterson basically offers white, might be called an evolutionary debunking argument so the most influential evolutionary debunking argument has to do with morality it goes like this gee the things that people uh think are good and bad correspond really closely to what's like in their evolutionary interest right like oh wow you should be really good to the people who are related to you well that's going to be really good for like your genetics right that's going to be really good for passing on your genes because you're going to be the nicest to people who are genetically the most related to you so then it goes like well hey here's an explanation of why we might have the moral intuitions that we have we might have the moral intuitions that we have uh because we evolved to have them and we evolved to have them to make us act in a way you know to justify to ourselves the actions that are most consistent with propagating our genes right and the evolutionary debunking argument goes like well okay so that's our explanation for our moral intuitions. So we no longer need to posit like a realm of moral facts that are like true and false, right? We no need to long we no longer need to posit moral truth and moral falsity because we already have this evolutionary explanation for why we think some things are good and bad. Now, Peterson, this is a very controversial argument um in the philosophy literature. Again, I you know, it'd be great for Peterson to read a bunch of it. Um it's very difficult to get around but not everybody's convinced by it either. Then you can also have like cultural arguments where it's like, oh, here's an an explanation of why you have some of the moral beliefs you do. Your culture taught you to have it and everybody else's culture taught them to have some different belief and that's why people believe what they do because of their culture. So that's a debunking argument as well. Peterson seems to think that a similar argument can be given when it comes to the concept of truth, right? So Peterson thinks, well, we evolve, you know, everybody evolves in a way to propagate their genes so whatever we think is true we probably just evolved to think that it's true and that is just pragmatically what's best for propagating our genes um now this argument seems much more doubtful to me than the argument when it comes to morality one reason is just that like almost all the time what is pragmatically best for us to think is true is simply like the stuff that is actually true right like Say you're say you're like some proto-human from like hundreds of thousands of years ago, and you like there's like a, a tiger coming at you and about to kill you or something, right? Well, what should you have evolved to think in this situation? Well, probably you should have evolve have evolved to like accurately perceive that there's a tiger that's about to kill you, right? That's the best way to have a way of evading this tiger. So there's no there's not really any reason to think that. When it comes to the idea of truth, that we would have evolved anything different than just like the standard correspondence notion—that's like truth is just the way that the world actually is. So it's, it's, it can be very strange um, listening to this pragmatic idea of truth. Peter has that Peterson has just because it's not clear why would that any be any different than just like the normal sense of true. And he never really he never really explains it. He he got he got into this argument with with Sam Harris.
0: Oh my God, that was the worst. Worst episode of Sam Harris's podcast. I mean, much worse than the Omer disease. I mean,
2: they almost never talked again, if you think about it.
3: Because people were like, Oh, we want we want They did after that because yeah, people like, we want more people voted. He had a vote. Should I have um, him on again? And then you know, everyone said, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um <laughs> but yeah, I think um one thing that you saw in that conversation is that Peterson in a way is a, kind of a realist about so there's a school of thought it's the very political school of thought that says like disagreement is just really about like who can impose like their language on somebody else. Right. So like, who can, I have a way of talking, you have a way of talking and I just need to insist on my way of talking until you like relent, right. Until you get in. And I think that there was an element of that to how Peterson was presenting himself in that conversation. And I, I, I don't really find that, you know, Pleasant. I don't think that that's like a good way to conduct yourself personally.
2: So, so is what he's doing a version of analytic philosophy then? If he's,
3: Oh no, no. Okay. So what? No, no, no. Explain so, the difference okay, there so, then. So if he's, so he's so not. The difference between. Yeah. Well, okay. Look, there's a sense in which, I mean, what is analytic philosophy? Right. There's a sense in which anytime anybody's making some argument, you know, like it's analytic philosophers will take an interest in a, in a, in a deductive argument. Right. Okay. Um, The question of whether Peterson is being postmodernist, you know, postmodernism is so ill-defined. I try not to use the term anymore. One problem with the term postmodernism is that like at the, at the same time it denotes on the one hand, a historical period, but also like a cast of thought. Right. Mm -hmm. So like, this is always very difficult. Take the enlightenment, right? (laughs) So some people are like, you know, Oh, the enlightenment was about X, Y, and Z. And then other people are like, Oh, but there were enlightenment thinkers, who were opposed to all those things, right? And they kind of sowed sowed the seeds of counter-enlightenment, right? And well, what's going on is just the two people are using the terms differently. The first person is using the term to refer to a philosophical school, and the second person is using the term to refer to a historical period, right? Um, And I think you get some of these same problems with the term postmodernism, where in a basic sense, it just means whatever the hell is going on after modernism, And a lot of, you know, a lot of the people who you find on Twitter using the term postmodernism sometimes are not, you know, like I've had people will call analytic metaphysics postmodernism, even though people who do analytic philosophy very much don't think of themselves as being engaged in postmodernism at all. Yeah, I remember Kate
2: Mann flipping out. I hate to say flipping out. She got very upset when someone called her a postmodernist and she said, no, I'm an analytic philosopher and, you know, explained why.
0: It's, there's also a, a confusion between the. If we think of it just as a philosophical school, I studied the postmodernists for a semester, and we were looking at a specific group of thinkers from the mostly from the 1980s. So it was Foucault and Irigaray and um, uh, Gavatri Spivak and people like that. But when people talk about Postmodernists now, often they are referring to people like Robin DiAngelo, who are not really postmodernists. What they've done is taken just certain elements of that school of thought, in particular, the importance of language to construct reality. Like they have this yeah. enormous emphasis on the term terminology that we use, on using the correct mm-hmm. words, and on language over. Uh, language use is more important than the concrete, and language use actually sort of creates um, structures, your experience. So that is a postmodern idea that they have picked up. And then also this idea of uh, sort of dichotomous struggles between the self and the other, and the othering of certain identities. Mm -hmm. That also comes from postmodernism, but their approach to it is much more, Straightforward and political, and easier to read, and it's more kind of sound bitey. They've sort of taken a li- some little bits of postmodernism that worked for them, and they're they're using those in a political way for political campaigning. Um, mm-hmm. So it's very it's very hard to read Irigaray, but it's very easy to read Robin D'Angelo. Right, and that's because Iragaray is sort of freely exploring ideas, mm-hmm. and also as an absolutely terrible writer, in my yeah. opinion. That's
3: definitely and right. And
0: people like Robin DiAngelo, they have a straightforward political message that they want to get across. So they can't afford to be extremely obscure and only be read by four academics.
3: Right. Right. And they, yeah, they need, first of all, it's a political message, but it's also... um I mean, not to get too negative, but somebody like Robin DiAngelo is also putting together a very lucrative consulting career with her ideas. She needs them. You know, somebody like Robin DiAngelo, you have to be able to put together ideas that can be put into a PowerPoint, that can be put into like thirty-minute training sessions at large corporations and for college orientations and things like that. You know, you really need to have like the coloring book version of postmodern ideas. The fact of social construction being so important, it's definitely an inheritance from postmodernism. I wrote this article about a year and a half ago called Postmodernism Isn't Playing Around Anymore, where I was saying, you know, the interesting thing that's changed is that in the postmodern period, like somebody like Jacques Derrida or Michel Foucault, like they thought, like, all of our norms, you know, there was no justice, there was no morality, like those were all socially constructed too. Like, There was no, you know, we shouldn't be sure of any of these things. We can just play around with all these ideas and kind of like the idea of justice had its own oppressive force. You never get anything like that from like a Robin DiAngelo, right? Like they're a hundred percent certain every political proposition you put before them, there's no doubt in their minds about any of it, right? So the whole playful, like liberatory aspect, of course, they think it'll be politically liberatory in the end because they'll win, Right but it's not like liberating anybody from, you know, there's no jouissance, as Derrida
0: put it, right? Mm, mm. You, I'm going to quote you for a moment here because I really love this passage from that article. In Deconstruction, the game was to show how a text problematized its own violence. Every text, Derridaans thought, contained resources sufficient for its own critique. But in the new era of virtue signaling and apology extracting, this method obviously hasn't remained popular. Rather, the project of critique, outlined recently by Rita Felsky in The Limits of Critique, is now carried out by the hermeneutics of suspicion. It is not that seemingly bad texts are subject to interpretive free play, to Derrida's jouissance, which can draw out their ultimate complicity in the right thing. Seemingly good texts remain suspect, and are constantly interrogated as to their complicity in the wrong thing. And I was thinking of this in relation to, we used to do a lot when when I was at college, um, back in the ancient times, when we were, you know, chiseling on rock um, and things like that. We would do a lot of readings against the grain. So this was taking some, in much the same way as when Milton wrote Paradise Lost he found to his dismay that people took Satan to be the hero that his even though his his intention was clearly to make a villain of Satan he couldn't help making a depicting Satan in this very attractive way he's a disgruntled former employee turned rebel and there's something very heroic about him whereas God is this bureaucratic dictatorial asshole and that kind of, that's, a, that's an example of a text problematizing its, itself. And we, for example, I used to do a feminist reading of Pope's, Alexander Pope's poem, Epistle to a Lady. And my argument was that in Epistle to, to a Lady, which is subtitled On the Characters of Women, Pope's intention is to write a rather misogynistic Epic poem, which is uh, mocking women, but in the the kind of attention that he lavishes on the subjects of his satire, actually humanizes them, and his poem is a gives us a very vivid depiction of how women are constrained by society. So it has sort of political implications, and. It also makes us really empathize and identify with them. So my reading was that Pope didn't want to write a feminist text, but he did write right. one. And that's that's quite a kind of post in a sense, a quite postmodernist the author is dead reading. That Pope's intention is not what matters, but what there is within the text. And I'm gonna read a tiny bit of that poem to give you an illustration. So this is uh from Epistle to a Lady. Pleasures the sex, as children birds pursue, Still out of reach, yet never out of view, Sure if they catch to spoil the toy at most, To covet flying and regret when lost. At last, to follies youth could scarce defend, It grows their age's prudence to pretend. Ashamed to own they gave delight before, Reduced to feign it when they give no more as hags hold sabbaths less for joy than spite, so these their merry miserable night, still round and round the ghosts of beauty glide and haunt the places where their honour died. See how the world its veterans rewards, a youth of frolics, an old age of cards, fair to no purpose, artful to no end, young without lovers, old without a friend, a fop their passion but their prize a sot, alive, ridiculous, and dead, forgot. So you can see how that kind of passage could be read as a misogynistic attack, but you can also see how reading it, it's quite a moving portrayal of the fate of these unmarried older women.
3: Yeah, so there was this idea in the postmoderns that you would take a passage like that and you would it would kind of explode, right? Or, or implode. It would explode from the inside, right? It would kind of under the force of its own multiplicity you know the the multiplicity of possible interpretations any force of authorial intent would fall apart and this was partly inherited from uh the new criticism of of earlier in the 20th century where they had the the intentional fallacy of uh, a whimsy and beardley or whoever they were um, the idea that I, no, I Richards, uh, yeah, yeah, and so, so this was a big part of postmodern theory, and kind of still when I was in college, you know, two thousand four to two thousand eight, I was still learning this version of postmodernism in a way, in my lit crit classes, but what I saw in the activism on my college campus was very different because there was no. You know, if they saw a document that they decided was misogynistic, the tactic was never like, oh, let me like explode this from the inside by giving like a creative new interpretation of the document. The tactic was always like, no, we need to nail down the negative interpretation of this as misogynistic and get people to understand that that's the true interpretation, right? And that that's the only interpretation. Mm. It's such a very, Mm. you know, it's like a vastly different approach. Um, And so that's part of, that's another reason why I've wondered, you know, How useful is it? And there was recently, there was this forum in the Chronicle of Higher Ed where a lot of people actually just like echoed stuff that I wrote in this article a year and a half ago, Um, probably with...
0: Which, Which we will link to. All of this will be in the show notes, everything we refer to. Yeah.
3: So that's, I mean, that's my main thing on postmodernism. I don't know how useful, you know, and then you get into the the whole petersonian like postmodern neo-marxism and i think we all know like the kind of thing he was saying there but like the postmoderns were completely opposed to the marxists somebody on twitter asked um you know which postmodernists do i actually enjoy reading and find useful i've been reading a bunch of baudrillard for the past couple years i think he had a he was kind of like so he said a lot of things that were actually crazy but are like coming true so like his description he said things like, uh, you know, the Iraq war never happened because it was on television, you know, the first Iraq war. And like, that doesn't make any sense at all. Right. Like this is just a ridiculous idea. Um, but actually, you know, like if you think about deep fakes and if you think about like, you know, all sorts of video editing and stuff like that, you know, we may be moving into a more uh, Baudrillardian world than we actually inhabited in the past. But Baudrillard is somebody who was very opposed to, you know, to Marxism, Marxism had a very not playful, like sense of history as, you know, just very determinate, you know, history is on this course towards the, towards the eventual communist utopia. Right. Um and this idea of history as being linear was very opposed to almost all of postmodern thinking.
0: It um, also seems to me, um, Helen was recently on a podcast with uh, Jordan Peterson and she, Corrected him on this. He was describing it as neo Marxist, uh-huh. and Helen said, It's not neo Marxist. I will link to this in the show notes because she did this much more uh, succinctly and um, articulately than I can. But I feel it's a bit low resolution. Marxism is about conflicts between groups. Okay, a powerful group and a, an a, a oppressor and oppressed groups. But mm-hmm. does that mean that every conflict between an oppressor and an oppressor and an oppressed group is Marxism? I don't think so. You know, is the struggle against the caste system in India, is that Marxism? I mean, it is. there is Marxism also in India, but I would say no. I think that the economic part of the theory is crucial. And that if we just describe everything that Mm -hmm. is a struggle between two unequal groups as Marxism, it just doesn't make sense to me.
1: Yeah, so I agree that um your term low resolution is really good for this idea that, you know, group struggle as a frame. But I, I think it's also true that, you know, group struggle is not really characteristic of postmodern philosophy as a frame. Um and group struggle as a sort of overarching meta narrative about the world is exactly the sort of stuff that like the high postmodernists like uh leotard or someone i'm probably mangling the french on that um but they would have rejected that idea out of hand right that there is this just one way that you can view all struggle in the world right
2: Mm. so
1: one of the critiques that people when they talk about you know social justice as being about group struggle one way that they make the critique is just like you can't reduce all of politics and human relations to just this one idea. Right. So it's this anti-reductionist view. Well, anti-reductionism about politics is like a very kind of postmodern approach. Right. Um, so it's kind of, it's kind of weird to think of postmodernism as being on the side of, um, this reductionism into group struggle. I definitely think that, you know, group struggle and saying you know saying our group is oppressed and this other group is is bad where the good guys they're the bad guys that's like a recurrent feature of human psychology right that's very difficult to avoid and in fact like sometimes in the anti-postmodern groups it's just like they treat like the postmodernists like the progress the the oppressor groups right um mm-hmm. mm. and so i think it's i think you know that's why I kind of like somebody like John Height, um, even though there are things I disagree about with Height as well. But you know, for John Height, a lot of this is just kind of like which elements of of human psychology are being encouraged in these circles right now, in these social justice circles, and which which elements of human psychology are being discouraged. Um, and I think it's better, it's often better to think about just like the universals of human psychology rather than about you know, oh, what is the new evil ideology that's capturing, you know, the young folk? Mm, um, mm. I think this is more productive and it, you know, it leads to less binary, you know, less black and white thinking. And it keeps you more aware of, I'm sure Iona and Victor, you agree that in, in our circles, you know, like in the IDW sphere, there's tons of, Black and white thinking, and tons of us versus them thinking there as well, right? Ooh, so it's not like it's. Easy.
0: You said It's the, not like it's. You said the
1: words. <laughs> yeah, I said. I said the words. I said the words. So we're gonna have to do, we're gonna have to do the IDW talk.
0: I'm not um, gonna let that pass. But you just talk for a moment. Just, I'm just giving you yeah, some rope. Please say, do hang yourself. Hang myself. We'll get with it. back to that. Talking of power moves, I want to read another piece from one of your articles. So you are talking about complicity. What does it mean to be? complicit. And we talked a little bit about the way in which trolling sort of exploits this because all publicity is good publicity. And I'm going to read this. Complicity is also connected with the idea of a right side of history and with the idea of history as a struggle involving forces like racism and sexism, which admit of no clear definition precisely because they find a different way to manifest in every era. If one fails to see his own era's manifestations of these forces for what they are, then he is complicit in the action of the forces, and thus in all the forces' past manifestations as well. Who edited that? It should be if one fails to see one's own... Sorry. Um, this can lead to a situation where the actions even of very ethical people are geared toward meeting a bizarre counterfactual standard of historical analogy rather than promoting any particular good or lessening any particular harm in the actual present world. Everyday actions with no material import become, to adapt tanehisi Coates's Coates' phrase, hot with history. The benefit model can help us understand some social justice statements along the following lines. All men are complicit in patriarchy, because they benefit from it. All white people are complicit in white supremacy, etc. However, the benefit model fails to explain why the case of the critical piece is not subsumed under complicity or endorsement. Naturally, it benefits a writer and an outlet to publish a widely shared essay on an inflammatory topic, but intuitively and empirically based on widespread reactions to the piece, the fact that the essay criticizes the channel in question means that the writer and the outlet are not complicit in its growth. Similarly, that a white person may make a living out of criticizing white supremacy or a man may make a living out of criticizing patriarchy does not seem to make them more complicit in these things or to endorse them more. So even if the benefit analysis gets at some aspects of the usage of these ideas, it is only some specific kinds of benefit that should be taken to imply complicity saying that we hate the bad things is always a good way to express the shared values of a group. But to do this, we must wave the bad things in front of everyone's faces. In doing so, we platform, amplify, and signal boost the bad things, giving them the chance to convince or convert people who might not otherwise have come into contact with them. So I find this idea fascinating that there is a kind of complicity in waving those bad things in front of everyone's faces for our own benefit in order to virtue signal and say, look, I'm really good because I hate these bad things. Um, Like the shoe on head T-shirt, she has a sort of T-shirt with a motto that says for good things against bad things. But at the same time, by doing that, we're making those bad things visible and some people are going to read them and agree with them. I don't know what to do with that, but I just love that <laughs> argument. <laughs> and Sarah Hayder at the beginning of this year, Sarah Hayder said that it was her New Year's resolution to not quote tweet bad things like this, to to avoid snarky quote tweeting or draw, to drawing attention to bad ideas and opinions in this kind of way.
3: Yeah, I think it's you know the quote tweet model. And this is how, you know, I don't gain as many followers on Twitter as I used to because I think I do less stuff like this because people love this. You know, if you find like the dumbest person in the enemy tribe on Twitter and just like relentlessly quote tweet and own them. It's a great way, it's a great way to get people to think that you're that you're good and that you're on their side, but it's also a great way of helping the person with the dumbest opinions on Twitter get a lot of people to see their tweets, right? And it's a way of – it's just helping mm-hmm. them out mm-hmm. and helping them be seen. Um, and so I think it's really important mm-hmm. – if you engage with dumb people, they should be the dumb people from your side, and you should be critical of them, like we've been saying. And if you engage you, – like when you engage with people from the other side, you should be engaging with, you know, the best possible versions of the people from the other side. A lot of people say, you know, you know, they'll, they'll re- start reading – articles on quillette or aria about social justice for instance and then they'll say something like oh wow like i didn't know i didn't know all this stuff about social justice before and it's kind of like well, in know in one sense it's good because they're learning but in another sense it's like well who's really spreading the social justice ideas to all these people right and so mm-hmm. i think that's why and this was true of like you know take richard spencer and you know before richard spencer was featured in the media as the like oh look how scary the alt-right is you know he would like nobody would it's not like he had any friends or like anybody would talk to him right you know he wrote for all these you know magazines online that nobody reads and then these newspapers and magazines were like oh we can make a lot of money off of reporting on the alt-right we can make a lot of money off of a you know, reporting on it, the new extremists and the new white supremacists and white nationalists. And it's not that these people didn't exist. It's just that um, the media coverage did much more to, to, to raise the profile of these organizations than anything else. Um, and I think it's, if for somebody, so I don't care that much about any of this because I'm not really invested in the idea of complicity. But for people who are, I, I don't see a way around this problem.
0: Yeah, I tend to avoid it by just not being invested in the idea of it. Um, How do you feel about people going on other people's podcasts Mm -hmm. and shows? So um, is there a point at which the person whose podcast or show it is, is so vile that you should not go on their show, even if it is to argue against them or or just to spread your own ideas, which are good ideas to their group of listeners who would otherwise not be exposed to Um, them? Is there a point at which you feel, well, this is a person whose podcast should not go on? Yeah, you know, I think it's kind of a
3: case-by-case thing. Um, I think that, you know, often you should just think about, like, well, is this person worth talking to in, like, a normal? You know, like, I think it's best to try to avoid just going, like, talking to everybody who wants to talk to you, you wouldn't be, like, if you're walking down the street and, like, some crazy person with, like, wearing, like, you know, a swastika or something started trying to talk to you, you would just, like, start walking in the other direction, right? And I think it's good to preserve some of those instincts, you know, when you deal with people online. Um, <laughs> and there's no reason to be, like, oh, <laughs> online is different. I'm going to, like, engage this person even though, like, they're covered in, like, Nazi regalia. Um, I do think that like, but I, I don't think that there's any hard and fast rule. And, um, I do think that, you know, I'm somebody who everything I do is like arguing against people and arguments and counter arguments. And, um, so I don't think, I think if somebody says, well, my goal in going on that podcast was to argue against them. And then if you watch the podcast and it is actually that person arguing against them the entire time and trying to shoot down their beliefs. um, Then I think it's fine to give that person the benefit of the doubt, whether I would do that in many situations. um, I think in many situations I would probably try not to. I also know that for me, you know, I can be a real people pleaser, right? You know, like I can be really, whoever I'm talking to at the time, I often feel very motivated to rock the boat with that specific person. It's different on Twitter when you're talking to like a million people at once. Right. So then in a way that kind of helps, it can mm-hmm. help you be more mm-hmm. yourself because you're not subject to the whims of like the one specific person you happen to be talking to. Um, but I would certainly, that would certainly be a, a secondary kind of thing to think about for me that I would just be like, I don't want to put myself in the position of you know being on a podcast with somebody who's saying you know like racist stuff for instance and knowing who I am sometimes I'm just like not in the mood to rock the boat. I wouldn't want to put myself in the position of, you know, just like agreeing with them and just like saying, oh, I can't wait for this to be over. You know, I'm just gonna agree so that it's less painful. Um so that would those are the sorts of things I would be thinking about. But I don't I'm no, really not a guilt by association type. So I would never be like, oh this person appeared on this podcast and therefore I can like come to a lot of conclusions about them without listening to it. You know, if I knew something else about them, I do think that it's always something to be aware of when you're trying to construct a public persona that other people do make these judgments. So early on in the James Damore stuff, Mm. one of the first, one of the first (laughs) interviews he did with was with Stefan Molyneux. Right. And I was talking with, um, Oh my God, what's Mm. wrong with me? What's her name? No, not Saloni. Saloni. Um, Demore's friend. Um, no. Nope. Um, uh, why am I not – why am I so stupid? Um, it starts with an M. Um, I'm feeling – I feel so bad. I hope she doesn't listen to me doing this. Um, but I was talking to her, and I was like, look, you got to get him. You can't let him pe- be appearing on Stefan Molyneux because people will immediately – and people still to this day, when they when they try to own Demore on Twitter, they're like, oh – he went right on Molyneux, and it's just like you have to – if you're – you have to be aware of how this will affect people's perceptions of you. Um, but on the other hand, like that's – the fact that it's never it's, – you should never be hyper-aware of that, right? Because people – other people's perceptions only matter so much. Um, Marlene, by the way. Yeah, just, it's a, Marlene. Yeah, Marlene. It was, mm. So I knew it was M-A-R, but I was going <laughs> to say Marjorie, but that, oh. there's no way it's Marjorie. Um but yeah, so I don't think I don't think there's a hard and fast line about, you know, is this person too vile? I definitely think that if people are if you're invited to be on a podcast, you should think like, Well, is this person really worth talking to? Do they have any sane views, you know? <laughs> or is it just gonna be like me struggling not to be associated with them for an hour? That doesn't <laughs> sound like good.
0: this is asked by somebody who calls himself Bowser Dot Sis. Oh, um,
2: the legend. Bowser. Yeah.
0: He's a legend. <laughs>
2: well, you know, within our, within our really tiny circle of legends. legendary Twitter. Aren't we all
0: legends here?
2: <laughs> we are. That's what I mean. There's there's legends and
0: so um I'd be curious to hear, he asks, if Oliver's thoughts on free speech and content moderation have changed mm-hmm. since running and eventually closing down his Discord server. Um, and discord is that app that is similar to, to Skype, but you can't, there's no video and you can talk in a larger group. Is that, Mm -hmm. is that fair?
3: Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of of like Slack. Slack. It's like a, a system of chat rooms. Um, okay. Well maybe viewers will, but it's, it's like a system of chat chat rooms. It's like a Um, chat
0: room, but you can talk.
3: Yeah. You can also talk, you can also talk over audio. Yeah. yeah it's like a clo- it's like a closed off reddit you
2: know you can have all these sections of topics and um you know different areas where you post on different yeah.
3: things. so for for the it, question to put it vaguely here's what I'll say I found a struggle that I hadn't anticipated of the following form I had created a community that was much more successful than I expected it to be, and that gradually, and not in a radical way, but in a significant way, had gradually, by different people inviting other people who I didn't actually know, and just through norms forming and things like that, had gradually become like not a place that I myself identified with very strongly. And so I was faced with what I thought of as kind of a dilemma, which was like, am I going to keep my name on something that I don't really feel reflects who I am versus am I going to shut down a space for conversation that these people feel that they don't have elsewhere? Um, And the first thing I felt like went against like my artistic instincts where I really just want, I want everything I do to be, like, expressive of who I am, you know? Like, I'm really, like, a romantic in that way. And but the second one went against my political instincts in a lot of ways, where it's just, like, there aren't that many of these spaces, and I was really happy to be able to provide it for people. And I do feel that my political views on free speech haven't exactly changed, but I have a certain amount more empathy for, like, people who are put in these situations where they need to decide – do I, do I censor this view that I feel is like not representative? You know, if a college administrator says, you know, like this, this doesn't represent who we are as a community. Like I can, now I have a more concrete understanding of what that feels like, right? Where you're kind of like, oh, this is, I do have a responsibility for this community and I do want to reflect who I am. So I would say, although my views haven't changed, maybe they should have, I do feel that I have a bit more understanding of what it's like to be in that position. And I think that, you know, a lot of, I think a lot of, a lot of the time the people who feel that they're in that position shouldn't, and maybe I shouldn't have felt that I was in that position with my discord server. But like, if you're the Dean of students at a college, you should not feel that like the college is like an artistic expression of your identity. Right. You know, like that's not your role as an administrator on a college campus. You're just like somebody with a higher ed degree who's kind of like getting in the way, you know? And so I, f- to a certain extent my views on like, concrete cases of free speech on college campuses haven't changed. But maybe for something like a small magazine, you know, if a magazine is like, oh, we're going to fire this person because we found out that they also write these sorts of things at this other place, you know, if you're the person running that magazine and it's your name on the masthead, you know, then maybe to a certain degree, you do sort of feel like I have ownership over this and it needs to be an expression of who I am. So I think I'm just a little bit more familiar with that struggle. And now I see it in less black and white terms now. Um, and, uh, and of course, I hate that because it makes it harder to be like outraged and to see dece- and to like demonize the people I disagree with, which is always the most fun.
2: If I, and if I can jump in, I think there's like a conquest's fourth law, which is any server or platform or whatever that isn't inherently like center left becomes Gab. <laughs> and, um, and even gab itself right gab was like hey we're this free speech thing you know whatever and then just people started posting things about the person who runs it and right so that person is like i I don't know all the details but if it's just i think it's very hard to run um something sort of based on free speech principles without sort of bringing in, I don't want to say the wrong people, but I think some people, there's just people that show up purposely to ruin things. Well, you know, I think it's more than just a troll. There's just people like, I just want to see things burn, you know? So it's not just unsavory views or something like that, but there are some people that come in and do want to knock a system down. And I think the systems are kind of looking out for that, I think in a sense. Um, And, you know, so they might, even though they take on people that aren't exactly the edge cases, the worst cases, I think they're worried about the worst case and what comes after that. So um,
0: How do you feel about censorship on a large platform like Twitter? Um, because I think that Gab and these other small platforms would not be such hotbeds mm-hmm. of Nazis if Twitter really had a --: I
3: agree 100 percent consistently
0: free speech policy.
3: And I think that that is part of why that's part of why the effect that Victor was talking about happens, right? Like the reason why if you start, if you start a server with no censorship, the reason why it fills up with certain people of a certain political view is that people with that political view feel that they're being kicked out of, of other places. And it gives them, it literally makes it, I feel that it literally makes it easier for them to organize and to feel that they're like a unit, you know, it makes them more cohesive as a group. It gives them a victim narrative, you know, and I think everybody, everything about it is conducive to their extremism and not conducive Mm -hmm. to de-radicalization. So I am a hundred percent on board with, I don't know anything about the legal side of it. I don't have any opinion about, whether it should be called a <laughs> platform or whatever, but I will say that, you know, I think t- speech should be freer on Twitter and enforcement should be m- more neutral. That's what I'll say.
2: Well, I think, I think, I think would, if Twitter wants itself, wants to have a certain stance and say, this is what we're about. Cause you see a lot of people mm-hmm. angry at Twitter, right? Or Jack, literally Jack, right? Jack, really? You're letting people say this and Jack, I think should say something like, "Here's my personal view on, say, vaccines, right? Here's what I have to say about vaccines." Blah, Blah 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 blah. You know. But I think, I think a way to fight that extremism, you know, going elsewhere and getting worse, would be to have a set of principles about your site and you yourself, but then sort of letting them fight better online. I don't know. I don't know how to. I don't know how. It's it's very difficult, you know, but. It is really like why you know you hear that like why are these people corralling in discord it's because a lot of them were kicked off twitter and now they now they can just find each other really easily without anyone disagreeing with them you know or challenging them
0: and they don't they they don't have the chance of having their views challenged in conversation and i think that you know there's a lot of mockery of the idea of the marketplace of ideas and i do think that debating ideas does not usually have a short-term effect, does not usually have the short-term effect of convincing people. At mm-hmm. least, I am seldom convinced in the moment when people are debating with me. <laughs> I'm not very good at being owned. Oh,
2: Oh, that's too bad. It's one of the great pleasures in life. That's my. Opinion. I don't yeah. like being
3: owned. And <laughs> admit, it, and especially when you admit that you're owned, admitting that you're owned is the best. Yes, I want to <laughs> well, say. Well, I
2: mean, admitting I get owned all own the time, is, but is, is, it's a very satisfying feeling because you know. Yes, you know who I... I really like on this is Sam Harris, and I remember him saying something like, "I don't want to be wrong any longer than I have to be," and I think if there's one thing I hate more than being owned it's being incorrect. Mm -hmm. I love being, I love being correct. I love having the facts. I love like, cause then I get to own somebody else. Right. So, um, (laughs) so I think it's very, yeah. I mean, of course it's not fun being wrong or um, being well argued against, but at the end of the day, if you can, if you're taking in things from people, then it doesn't Mm -hmm. hurt so bad. If you're thinking of, You know what I mean if you think of the people you come in contact with as your teachers in a sense then you're the one growing from the exchange right even if they were correct about this and Mm. they don't see it as Mm. a two-way conversation at the end they sort of lose Mm. something in that exchange whereas you're pulling something from them and you already have this database of information Mm. it's kind of like wow okay I'll assimilate that into my my mind as well um
0: that's that's a really noble way of thinking of it. Unfortunately, I am not so noble. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> if people said, Iona is stupid, <laughs> but she's so sexy, you know, then I would be okay with that. Oh,
3: man. Well, there you go. Oh, man. That's not... <laughs>
0: but that's not a very... Not idea of time often in our podcast. It's <All right>. understandable. <laughs> Anti-feminine. Um. I mean i i feel I feel strongly that Twitter should be completely there should be complete free speech on Twitter and I am because I feel twitter is an, it has become has become a public marketplace an irreplaceable de facto monopoly service um and so it should have free freedom of speech in the same way as your conversations aren't policed when you get on the train and you have you're Uh, They don't record your conversations and decide to kick you off your mobile phone provider or your email server or whatever it is. In the same way, I think that Twitter should have freedom of speech. There might, of course, be some illegal things for which we should take people off the platform. Speech acts that actually break the law. But in general, I think you should have freedom of speech. And while I think that the marketplace of ideas is not always very effective in the short term, or even medium term, I think in the long term it is. The long term arc is towards greater enlightenment. I do believe that. But I think that making friends with people and having personal conversations is extremely effective. Not that many of us are able to do that. I certainly can't uh, do that thing of making friends with someone with very, very different opinions and convincing them through my friendship. But I know some people who can, and those people work miracles. And I'm going to link in the show notes to my friend Gurwinder Bogal.
3: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, so great. I
0: I love. I cannot express how much I adore Gurwinder, and uh, I will I will link to his article, which is called "How Not to De Radicalize a Twitter Neo-Nazi," um, where he was he got into conversation with this woman who is in with this qu- very extreme white supremacist group. I mean, is there a non-extreme white supremacist group? But you know what I mean. She was uh, well. Someone once um, accused uh, my friend Iram um, Ramzan of being a beige supremacist. <laughs> um, so, but she was part of a extreme group, and he began this conversation with her, and she was just more and more coming over to his line of thinking because he's very patient, very respectful, and was just approaching it on a personal level, like on a person-to-person, intimate level. And just as they were really getting into some fruitful conversation, she was beginning to express some doubts Mm -hmm. about her ideology, Twitter banned her.
2: Jack, what are you doing, buddy?
0: And they deleted her account. And she retreated to Gab or something (laughs) like that. (laughs) Yeah where, of course, everybody is going to agree with her and just reinforce her in her views. And um, so I think that that is very important. We shouldn't underestimate that potential. And just the potential of being exposed to a wide range of different views always has the potential for de-radicalization.
2: Or even, you know, we were kind of joking about extremism or not, like a non extremist white nationalism or something like that i mean even if we don't change Mm -hmm. someone's mind if we can at least decrease the possibility of violence that's a win too right like hey you know what i don't think this person should live in our country but you know he was at least kind of nice to me you know i'm not gonna like pick up a gun you know like there there are there are in betweens where we should be really grateful that someone doesn't turn things up a notch you know even if they're not going to vote the same way and suddenly have a come to jesus moment at least it's like we can hey you and i you know i always love pointing out that story way back in the day Mm -hmm. with the the guy who ran you know he was a leader of a kkk group and you know schools were being segregated and you know the one way they were trying to enforce this they had the leader of the kkk work with um um a black woman in in the community and obviously he hated it at first but he was like hey wow she has kids i have kids we're a little more alike or a lot more alike than i thought and um i mean they became great friends, and he changed but even when he hadn't changed yet he said wow she has kids i have kids whatever you know like he wasn't gonna go you know smash her house and i think that's what twitter's probably missing right it's like you you even if the I love, you know, to bring it back to Freud. I love the idea of sublimation, right? So even if people are saying crazy ass shit, they're saying it on Twitter instead of yelling it out of their windows, yelling it on a train, you know, picking up a bat, right? Like uh, at least they're doing it somewhere. And then there's people challenging them
3: and it's, you know, it's a two way street. Uh, Go ahead. This is one reason why, So this is something that my friend Grant Addison, I remember him tweeting about this like maybe a year or two ago that he was big on. There were all these surveys about like, you know, college students, you know, and you know, how the more, the more left-wing a college student was, the less they feel they should have to be friends with Republicans and things like that. There are all these, you know, all these, you know, articles about here's why, don't talk to your conservative relatives. Don't talk to your conservative friends, you know, like don't date conservative men or conservative women. Um, And that's part of why I think all that stuff is so pernicious is like, it's just like, it's literally just sending them. And it's because people have this, you know, you could call it like some sort of political social privilege if you want in certain circles. Right. The idea is basically just like, I have the, the political views that are good in my community, and they have the political views that are considered bad in in my community, and so why should I have to deal with somebody who's one of the bad ones if I'm one of the good ones? Um, But I think it's so pernicious, and basically what you're doing is you're, you're making it impossible for them to have access to somebody who disagrees with them, and you're making it, you know, you're just sending them, you're saying you have to deal with all the other people who are like you. Well, guess what, they're never gonna change their views. And I think that people only do this when, when they've decided that they can win without you, right? People, it's when they've decided yeah. we're already winning. We don't need, you know, we don't need to convince anybody who disagrees with us because we're just we're gonna win no matter what. So we can alienate all the people who disagree with us because we already have enough people. And that's one reason it always shocks me that progressives act that way because when they talk, they they act as though oh like we're getting completely screwed out here, right? We like with all these. Republicans and all the alt-right and everything you know like we're being completely you know there's this red wave and you know everything and like fascism is on the rise and blah 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 well if you really believed that why would you act as though like you already have all the people you need right why would you why would you act as though you don't need to convince anybody of anything anymore so that really bugs me and it just makes me think that like these people actually have no idea of what they believe about their relative power or what they need to do to accomplish their goals. Um, hmm. So yeah, yeah, I, I don't, I, I don't know. It's, it's a real mess to me. But you know, the other way that that happens on Twitter and on basically any social media site is the like these algorithmic filters. Um, and I talked about this with Victor when he in- interviewed me. It's just like you know, you're gonna th- 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 all these systems are designed that you're gonna keep seeing the content that you click on, right? So, like, the instant you start using one of these sites, you're path dependent on however you felt, like, the day that you started using it, right? So, like, if I had started using Twitter on, like, some different day, I might have ended up with a much more, like, left-wing feed, you know, um, or if I went on Twitter when I was less grumpy or something. And I think that's part of it, too, that people end up just being sent media that is, like, not challenging to the views they already hold. I don't know. That's probably enough for that question. Was there one more question you wanted to ask? <laughs> yes. Um, Victor, can you choose one? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Um, it was from, let's see. I'm scrolling to it. It was, I believe, from Fat Sarah jiong and if oh, I great, yeah. modify the question again. Yeah,
3: please do. I'm going
2: to modify the question a bit as I do. I like to. Please do. Sorry, I'm an authoritarian when it comes to user no, questions. No, no, no. Um, <laughs> I think we have an idea who this yeah, maybe. maybe I, I, at least I have. Maybe a idea, decent idea. But I have a pretty good idea. But like, she is asking, you know is it, you know, a lot of your reviews and things really, and this is kind of signal boosting, I Mm -hmm. guess, right in a way, but you know, should you be writing more about things that are really good instead of writing these snarky takedown articles of books that are slightly horrendous? What do you think about that? I think
3: it's a great question. Uh, I think probably I Mm -hmm. should be. And even more than that, I should be doing more to present my own ideas. But frankly, it's very scary to be presenting your own ideas, right? Like you, it makes you very vulnerable, (laughs) right? Whenever I Whenever I write about something that I really truly believe, it makes me feel very vulnerable. Um, and it's I'm, I'm not something I'm comfortable with. I recently, just a few days ago, gave my, my very first academic presentation outside of my own school. And uh, I got very nervous, you know, and I got very stressed about it. Um, and I just felt very fragile and vulnerable up there. Um, and uh, I think it's very easy. it's It's much easier to be the critic. You know, there's that what is it the Teddy Roosevelt quote about like the guy in the ring versus the critic on the outside? Well, for the most part, I'm the critic on the outside, and it's it's just a lot more emotionally easy um to be the critic, so that's a big I can be completely honest about it. That's a big part about it for me that I haven't quite built up the you know the readiness to really be putting myself out there for my own ideas for signal boosting other people. I think part of it goes back to what Iona was saying before in that like. There's not really like a huge number of people who I think are like constantly producing stuff of high quality, right? There's like a group of people who I will criticize, and then there's a group of people who I won't criticize because it'll look like you know, like sour grapes or something. One thing that I wish I were more critical of in intellectual dark web writing is that there's very few people who seem to try to like create a beautiful sentence, you know, in intellectual dark web publications. And that's something that I feel that you you really do try to put a sentence together with style, and I think it, it's quite rare in some of the publications that are in this sphere. So, like, I think if I don't share your work, it's often because, like, a lot of it is about dancing and stuff like that that just like isn't my necessarily my wheelhouse. But I do read it, and it's you know, like it's often like moving in a way that like stuff in these publications often isn't. So, thank you for that. Um, but yeah, so that shows my critical side as much, though, right? Because it's like, you know, a lot of stuff, you know, like I just have, I'm, I'm a very critical person. So I often read a, an article in Quillette or ARIA or Arc Digital, and it'll be like, oh, this is good. But there's like this one thing that's just like, oh, it bugs me. And then like I can't, I actually, Robbie Suave, who's great, and he writes for Reason, and he's very, he's been very nice to me, and he's said incredibly kind things about my work. And the one time he, he published this piece, and I was just like, Robbie, and I pointed out a grammatical error to him. And I was just like, I cannot, <laughs> I cannot retweet this until you fix this grammatical error. And that's like, I feel like wow, an asshole. Man, some serious, yeah, but that's uh, just like the way I am, you know? <laughs> and so I think that's... Well, you're grumpy, that's, I'm right? I'm a grumpy that guy. That's, like my answer, that's my answer to that question. I'm a grumpy guy. And I'm what? also, I'm also very self-conscious. And uh, so, so that's why I end up being, having these critical takes most of the time.
0: Right. Yeah, and I did have a very serious conversation last week. It will be last week by the time this comes out with uh, Sohil Ahmed. He was a very serious guy. So mm-hmm. <laughs> hopefully it will bounce out.
3: <laughs> yeah, we are, <laughs> as you can tell.
0: Me too. Is there anything you are you want to say that I have not given you a chance to say?
3: No, uh, no, uh, I think I've gotten to say everything I was hoping to say. Yeah, uh, it's been a really it's been a really good time. I had a lot of fun. And I do have I'm looking back now through all the writing projects. You know, I, I don't know if you're like this, but I have like maybe 25 writing projects that I have listed that says like write this at some point. I think a lot of them could probably be good for Aria. So oh,
0: yes, please.
3: I'll I'll, think about, I'll just think about which one, which one might work fantastic. for you. That sounds fantastic.
0: Okay, that is a great note on which to end. Everyone send your writing projects in our direction. And thank you so much, both of you.
3: Yeah, good talking to you.
0: To those of you who made it through this far, congratulations. You will get a, a medal. No, you won't get a medal. I feel you ought to, or... <laughs> Yes, or you may have to have a little tattoo done or something. I survived the <laughs> podcast with Oliver Traldi <laughs> and Victor Rivera. <laughs> Thanks,
3: boys. Yeah, good talking to you. Thank, you. Thank you. Talk to you guys later.
0: Yeah. Bye. See you soon. See you have a lovely week, everyone. You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for ARIO magazine. ARIO is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant, edited by Helen Pluckrose, with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At ARIO, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both ARIO and 2 for T are entirely audience supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for ARIO, A-R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and 2 for T. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. plus. By becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. Two for Tea is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, take a moment to hit that subscriber button. Give us a rating. Write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.